0: As you find your seats, would you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me once again to the book of 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians, uh, we'll be in chapter 12 once again, uh, as we continue this sermon series through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and the grace gifts that God gives to his church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. At a time when we really don't see many miracles or miraculous things, maybe we do. Maybe they're all right there around us every day. We just don't know where to look, proclaimed the fabled Mr. Zuckerman. There's no denying that our own little Wilbur, he's part of something that's bigger, bigger than all of us. He really is some pig. Now, few of us would deny the presence of the miraculous in that beloved tale Of Charlotte's Web. We've been listening, watching, reading the story of Charlotte's Web for the last couple weeks in our household because my son Haddon in kindergarten is going through that and so it's become well known. If you didn't know about Charlotte's Web, the story is a runt pig is destined for the slaughterhouse but he not only encounters the kindness of an eight-year-old fern but soon becomes the object of Charlotte, a large gray spider's affection and her supernatural, life-saving efforts, which consist of her spinning into her web these words, pig, terrific, radiant, and humble. And while we as adults wink at the miracles and fairy tales, we still look for them on a daily basis, don't we? Uh, from everything from finding a parking spot on Black Friday to our kids making it through the winter months without sickness, the truth is we tend to throw around the word miracle quite a bit, don't we? But do we actually believe that miracles happen? Or are they just for fables? As we continue our series through the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 12-14, through 14, looking at these grace gifts God has given to his church through the Holy Spirit, here in verses 9 and 10, where we find ourselves this morning, we're confronted with two specific gifts that, if we're honest, make some of us somewhat uneasy, even uncomfortable. Here, Paul tells us that the same Spirit that brought about the work of regeneration so that we could declare Jesus is Lord, as we read in verse 3, also gives the gifts of healing and the working of miracles. And he apportions or distributes these gifts to individuals within the body of Christ as he sovereignly wills. And when we read this, we start to become a little skeptical, don't we? See, the problem is... We become skeptical skeptical, and even uneasy when we read those words because if we're honest with ourselves, while we would never verbalize it, many of us tend to see God as, as somewhat remote from the world we live in. We see him as, as distant and having little to no direct involvement in the world we live in and the everyday affairs of our lives. You might even say, that some of us function as functional deists. Or we believe in a divine creator of the universe, but one who is relatively uninvolved with his creation. And so when we read the Bible and find God interacting with his people, speaking to them, even doing miracles among them, we often find ourselves asking, where in the world is that God today? Where is he and interacting and speaking and doing miracles for us. I mean, we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as the author of Hebrews explains. We know that there's no variation or shadow due to change within our Father, as James writes. But the truth is, our experience, or should I say our lack of experience, speaks a whole lot louder, doesn't it? So how do we go about reconciling this? How do we reconcile the miracle-working, healing God of this book that we hold in our hands this morning the God that we, with the God that we experience on a day-to-day basis? Well, I certainly can't promise to answer that question in its totality this morning, but what I can do is lead you to where you can find those answers here in God's Word. The basis for what what we believe, and the norm for how we live out our faith. And so before we dive in here, looking at these two specific gifts of healing and miracles, let's go to God in prayer, asking for his help, asking for him to answer some of the questions that we have. Father, this morning, we come to your word, and as we read it, especially this morning, we seem to run into some gifts that I think, if we're all honest, we, uh, we, we wonder about. We're just not exactly sure if we've seen them, if we would ever see them, and how you might still work in the world today. And God, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would not only fill me with your spirit, so that I might say only what you would have me to say, and only what your word proclaims, but you would fill each and every one of us, that as we learn from your word, that you would assure us that you would give us greater faith for the good things that you can do, even the mighty things that you can do among us. And so, God, teach us this morning. I pray that we come to your word in humility, asking for you to speak in your name. Amen. Amen. As Paul continues his listing, of the grace gifts here in verses 9 and 10, we must not forget the groundwork that has already been laid for us in the first seven verses. Remember here, Paul has made it abundantly clear to the church in Corinth that the unity within the body of Christ must be sought through the use of these gifts. There's a beauty in the diversity of these gifts, but there's a beauty if and only if they are first and foremost firmly established in the unity of the source. And so Paul has shown us that over and over again. The unity of the source, the source of the gifts, is the spirit, the spirit himself. And you see, the primary issue the church in Corinth had with their practice of the spiritual gifts was not that they were insisting that some gifts weren't available or weren't present, but instead they were fighting over, bickering over which ones were more important which gifts were most powerful and brought the most popularity or or status this is why we see Paul taking aim here at the arrogance infecting their hearts by not only reminding them of who they once were back in um, verse 2 that they were pagans who were led astray to mute idols but he also reminds them that the only reason they are now spiritual at all is because of the work of the Spirit. And in doing this, he evens the playing field, so to speak. He does not allow this grace gift popularity contest, so to speak, to continue. Because, as he reinforces over and over again, there's only one who truly deserves the praise and fame. The Spirit. The Spirit who empowers these gifts. And so remembering the context, the even playing field, is then crucial in our understanding of these two gifts. For while we might look at these gifts and immediately be aroused by simply the possibility that they might occur at some point, the fact that they come from the one and same spirit that graciously gives all of the other gifts, it quickly reminds us that all of the gifts are in all actuality supernatural in nature. Not just these two. D.A. Carson explains it like this. While there seems to be an impressive mixture of what some might label natural and supernatural endowments or spectacular or more ordinary gifts, the intriguing thing is that Paul himself makes no such distinctions. It is the same God who works all things in all men. You see, Paul doesn't have a concept of the supernatural and the not-so-supernatural, the ordinary. He says these are all empowered by the Spirit, and therefore, they are supernatural. Well, I know, then, that we might come to this text this morning, and these two gifts, we might come with some preconceived notions about their availability and existence today. But we must acknowledge, as we've already learned in the text, and as we saw even from chapter 1, that Paul here assumes that these gifts are functioning within the church in Corinth. Otherwise, why would he be listing these gifts at all? I mean, if you take, for example, if I'm telling my children what's available for dinner one evening, and I just happen to throw in their chocolate chip cookies and Skittles as the options for what they can eat that night. Though, and they aren't at all available to them, and they don't even exist within our house at that present moment, that wouldn't make any sense, especially to my children. Uh, they would want that. And see, that's what's going on here. Even though there aren't apostles in this church in Corinth, Paul understands these two gifts that we read to be active among the church in Corinth. Because again, remember what we, he said in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that at the outset this morning in order to help those of us here who may want to jump to a conclusion or even jump past these gifts to the other gifts, simply ignoring these gifts because we've already concluded that these gifts aren't available for us today. Instead, I want us to take a moment this morning to pause and ask some questions of God and his word here, before we jump to conclusions or before we just rely on what we've always assumed to be, to ask questions like this, what are these gifts? What is the gift of healing and the working of miracles? And then where do we see them at all in scripture? And so before we make assumptions about these gifts on our own experience, we want to let God's word speak for itself. And let's look at what all scripture has to say before we come to conclusions. For you see, we can put ourselves in a, in a very dangerous position if we let our personal experiences and understanding box God in. If we believe God can only do what we have only seen him do, I'd contend that we're not all that different than the Pharisees and scribes in Jesus' day those who are bound to keeping their traditions and religious regulations, and in so doing, they completely miss the Son of God standing right in front of them. You see, the danger is for us, if we box God into our own personal experiences, we aren't letting what God says be the basis and norm for our lives. And so, laying aside our, our experiences, or our lack thereof, Let's go into this this morning and see what God has to say in his inerrant word about these gifts. And let that be our guide for understanding these gifts. And as we do in our endeavor to be a local church committed to the centrality of the gospel and the authority of the Bible in all areas of life, but also committed to the effective Christ-exalting operations of all the spiritual gifts, I believe God is going to teach us one overarching truth this morning. That God has power over all things, and therefore we must not confine him to our finite understanding and experiences. I think we can learn that for sure throughout God's word and as we study these gifts, that God has power over everything. and We can't confine him to our finite understanding and experiences. But don't just take my word for it. Let's look at his word. Look at verses 4 through 11 once again so we get the context of these gifts. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. In the past couple weeks, we've looked at those verses and tried to understand what are these gifts, services, and activities. To each, Paul continues, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's the purpose in these gifts, for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between Spirits to another various kinds of tongues to another the interpretation of tongues all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills and again there's a very important two words there at the end of verse 11 as he wills so the first question that comes to my mind when i'm running through this list here in verses 8 through 11 is, what are these gifts of healing and the working of miracles? Actually, I'd probably say it more like, what in the world is Paul talking about with healings and miracles? Are you asking that same question? Have you asked that question? Good, I'm going to assume you have, so let's look for the answer. What we immediately see here in these two phrases in the original language, which I'm not going to try to pronounce this week because I messed it all up last week, is that both of these terms in both of the phrases are plural. In other words, they would best be translated gifts, with an S, of healings, with an S, and workings of miracles. But what, what significant does that play in these gifts? Well, starting with gifts of healings, the fact that both of the terms are plural reveals two key aspects that help us in understanding of this gift. First, it suggests that there are different gifts for different kinds of sicknesses. That is, healing comes to various illnesses. This grace gift that Paul is referring to is is not just confined to one ailment. God is not only powerful over blindness or just over those who are paralyzed. No, he's able to heal cancer, a stomach ache, throat problems, digestive issues. I mean, you name it, God has the power to heal it. So the fact that these terms are in plural suggests that there are different gifts for different sicknesses. But it also suggests that the gift may come and go for various occasions. So Sam Storms notes, evidently Paul did not envision that a person would be endowed with one healing gift operative at all times for all diseases. His language here suggests that each occurrence of healing constituted a distinct gift in its own right. So you see, to accurately understand the language here immediately corrects one of the primary assumptions that many have regarding this gift. And that's the idea that if anyone could ever heal, they could always heal. It's a mistake to assert that one who has this gift of healing is able to heal on command. Or that they should be able to heal anyone or everyone who has an ailment. I mean, that just doesn't fit the text here that we're reading. It's more accurate to understand this gift as being subject to the will of God than to the will of the people. And that being said, the text here also suggests that as John Piper concludes, there will be many times when a person with some gifts to heal will not be able to heal. In fact, this was Paul's experience. God gave him grace to heal the crippled man in Lystra and many people in Ephesus, the demonized girl in Philippi, and Eutychus when he was taken up dead after falling out of a window because Paul was preaching too long. But Paul could not heal himself from the thorn in the flesh or from the ailment that he had when he preached in Galatia. Evidently, he could not heal Timothy from his stomach ailments, as recorded in 1 Timothy chapter 5, or Epaphroditus from his life-threatening sickness in Philippians 2, or Trophimus, whom he left at Miletus in 2 Timothy 4. We have all of these instances when Paul could heal, but then was also unable to heal. Sometimes Paul was given gifts of healings, and sometimes he wasn't. It is God, then, that we see who is sovereign in the gift of healing. There's nothing mechanical or automatic. Those who have seen God give, out of his grace, this gift of healing— It doesn't mean that they can just go to the hospital and start zapping people and saying, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. All right, there's no needs for hospitals anymore. That's not what Paul is saying here. The same would be the case for workings of miracles. Both terms are also in the plural, suggesting that there are various kinds of miracles, not just driving out demons or a special deliverance from physical danger. And just as it was with healings, miracles are also displays of God's will and his power. The literal word for miracle in this text is power in the original language. But it's not of human willpower. So one can't on their own command create a miracle or by their own desire pray up enough so that a miracle takes place. These are God's gifts, God's gifts that he gives in specific instances and in various times. And as such, they are completely and entirely given and experienced by the sovereign goodwill of God. According to his timing and purpose, he will grace these gifts to his church as he wills, not when we will. It's his divine prerogative to do so or not to. And so we notice what, again, Paul is doing here, even in the language that he's using. Once again, he's making sure that the people of the church in Corinth, who are fighting over which of these gifts they had and who was more popular, who was more powerful, he's making sure they aren't missing the person and the power behind the gifts, and that is the Spirit. That's where our unity is found. It's He who brings healings. It's He who brings about miracles. And since he's the source, we can also see that there's a connection here being made between the gifts of healings and miracles with the gift of faith. In fact, some commentators identify these gifts as merely the outworking of the gift of faith, explaining that healings and miracles were ways in which the gift of faith manifested itself. Now that being said, how then would we define these gifts? So if these gifts, as we've seen in the language, are, are not on command, that as one person has seen the gift of healing that they can go and just at any point heal somebody, or if they've seen a working of God's miracle, miraculous power, that he could just pray it up again, how do we define this? Well, I think Wayne Grudem's definition sums up well what we've found here in the text so far. They are, says Grudem, a less common kind of god's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself a less common kind of god's activity and you notice as he says that he's not going so far as to be a functional deist that's saying you know god's not present at all in this world and at some points he shows up and he heals And and does a miracle. No, he says it's a less common of God's activity. God is always active in this world, He's always with His people, but at times He arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to Himself through this grace of healing and miracles. You see, we can't forget God's primary purpose for gracing us with any of these gifts, whether it be the word of knowledge or the word of wisdom, as we saw last week, the gift of faith, even. As we see in other passages, the administration of the gift of helps, uh, being a servant, being able to administer, to lead, be able to teach. Any of these gifts are used to magnify himself. These gifts are to bear witness to God and to build up the church through that witness. They're not for self-promotion, but for God's promotion and The good of the church. And so we have answered somewhat the question of what are these gifts? But now we are led to ask the second question. Where do we see these gifts at work in Scripture? Well, here, even in chapter 12, we see this gift of miracles and healings mentioned again later on. Look down at verse. Twenty-eight. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all prophets? Are all are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And we'll we'll get to that in a couple couple weeks here. But where else do we see these? gifts of healing and the working of miracles in this book is it only in the gospels that we see healings take place or miracles is it only in the book of acts that we see god work through his church even through his his disciples to heal and work miracles is it only in the pages uh, that we read here that we see that at work well let's take a little journey and see what we can find. So, turn back to the very first page of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1. We don't have to go all that far until we encounter a, as great Brutum says, less common kind of activity by God in which he bears witness to himself and produces on wonder. The very first verse we read this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That sounds fairly miraculous, doesn't it? Then in chapter 2, we have the story of the creation of the world and mankind at the center. Chapter 3 is where the devil comes to Adam and Eve and tempts them to sin, and God expels them from the garden because of their sin and places an angel outside of the garden with a, a flaming sword to keep them from entering the garden. I mean, So far... Even just the first three chapters of this book, we've already encountered some pretty significant supernatural activity. Haven't we? Chapters 6 through 9, what does God do? He wipes out the whole earth with a flood, but then rescues just eight people in the ark, on which species of every living animal have been summoned and reside. Pretty miraculous, don't you think? Chapter 11 of Genesis records for us the Tower of Babel, where God comes down to confuse the languages of all the families of the earth. And then from chapter 12 to the end of Genesis, we have this story. Remember the story of that old man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, who is barren? She's unable to have children. And what ends up happening? Well, God sovereignly calls Abraham to go to a land where he'll begin a program to redeem the entire world through his offspring. Oh, wait, wait a second. Did he say offspring? Because Sarah can't have. But wait. What happens? Sarah has a child. Miraculous. And the story continues. Over and over again, the supernatural happens. Our journey through the book of Exodus last year, was filled with supernatural activity time and time again. A burning bush that doesn't burn up, plagues, the Red Sea that splits in two. Then as we continue throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we come across a small boy who kills a giant with just a sling and a stone. I mean, that's pretty miraculous. Samson's strength seems rather supernatural. Then you have Hannah, another barren womb. What does she end up doing? Rejoicing at the birth of her son, who would soon hear from the Lord. I mean, I'm thinking we have just a few miracles in this book. And we haven't even gotten close to the New Testament when Jesus shows up. I mean, at that point, when we flip the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have water turned into wine, demons cast into a herd of pigs, 5,000 people are fed with two small fish and five small loaves of bread. A fish has a coin in its mouth, just as Jesus said, and more. I mean, I think it's safe to say this book is full of miracles. And our faith rests in the miraculous. Our faith rests in a dead man coming back to life. And we see similar accounts of healings as well. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of Abraham praying for the healing of Abimelech, And his family so that they might have children again. And it happens. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses prays to God for the healing of his sister Miriam, who has leprosy. And what does God do? He heals her. Naaman is also healed of his leprosy after following Elisha's counsel. After what some scholars believe to be nine months of serious sickness and loss, the patient and trusting Job prays for healing. And is healed. Again, the list could continue on throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus will heal the lame. The blind, he'll allow to see again, the deaf to hear, the dead are brought to life, the sick are made well. Even the twelve disciples experience the gifts of healing and miracles as they're sent throughout Israel. Matthew tells us in chapter 10. And then you have the book of Acts. It's full of various instances. A crippled man is healed. Acts three six through eight, many of the sick were healed in Acts five verses fifteen through sixteen, paralyzed and lame people are healed in Acts eight. A blind man receives sight, and a paralyzed man the use of his limbs in Acts nine and uh, in verses seventeen through eighteen, diseased people were healed in Acts nineteen. As one was afflicted with fever and dysentery in Acts twenty eight. I mean friends, what we see throughout this book is that our God is a healing and miracle-working God. It's who he is. And he does all of this from a heart of mercy and love. And the truth is, his motives haven't changed. Our God has not changed from being a healing and miracle-working God, nor has his heart changed for his people. The primary reason God healed and performed the miraculous throughout the Old Testament, throughout Jesus, days here on earth and prior to Pentecost, was because he was a merciful, compassionate God. And so, I look at the word and conclude that the primary reason God would continue this work of healing and working miracles within his church is because he's the same. He's merciful and compassionate. He's no less merciful. He's no less compassionate. He's no less caring today as he was in the days recorded for us in the pages of this book. And so if God could do it then, I wonder why so many of us doubt if he can do it today. If he could do it then, why not today? The evidence from scripture seems to be quite clear. Our God is in the business of healing and doing supernatural things. Because he has power over everything. So why would we want to confine him to our finite understanding and our experiences? Could it be that we're allowing our experiences to inform our faith rather than allowing God's inerrant authoritative word to inform it? Or perhaps our lives are in need of more alignment to his word than we would like to admit. Maybe some of us have relegated his power to doing the supernatural simply to the past. I mean, that can only happen in the Bible days. It can't happen now. We dismiss it for the present. You see what Paul says here as he's talking about the gifts in their entirety is that the same Spirit apportions to each one individually as He wills. And they're all empowered by one and that same Spirit. And so this we can know for certain. Our God is powerful enough to heal and to work miracles. Oh, well, We can know that. We see it in these pages. We know He has the power to heal. We know He has the power to work miracles. And so, I want to simply encourage us as a church to respond to what we've seen from his word and what we know about his unchanging character and power, respond in faith. In faith, as Paul writes in chapter 14 and verse 1, earnestly desire these spiritual gifts that we would earnestly desire that God would show up once again to, to heal and to work miracles that confound our understanding. They don't fit with our experiences, but they fit with his character and who he has shown himself to be throughout his word. And that we would do so by praying in humility. Praying in humility that if God wills, Some of us may be graciously granted the gifts of healings and miracles for the blessing of the church and the glory of God's name in the world, not for any glory of our own. We wouldn't heal ourselves. We wouldn't be able to heal somebody else. God would grant that gift. And then by number two, that we would watch. We would pray and watch in expectation for God's power to be displayed. And so in faith, let's let's pray and watch for what God can do. Let's believe that the same God that we see in these pages is the same God that works today. And so to that end, let's pray this morning that God would give us faith, evidenced in an openness to display his supernatural power for the good of his church the glory and fame of his son Father, this morning, as we've taken a little bit of time this morning to look into your word, to, to dig deep into what are these gifts of healings and miracles and to see where you've done it before, God I pray for faith. there are sure I'm for sure more questions that each and every one of us has. Even this week, I felt the questions piling up my own mind wanting more understanding more knowledge looking even outside of your word at times trying to find answers but you and your kindness keep bringing me back to your word which is the basis for our life the norm for how we live and there we see that you have the power to heal and work miracles so give us faith that you might do that again we don't know when that would happen because it's your will. It's not ours. It's when you would choose to do it. So give us faith and help us to watch an expectation that you can work as you have in the past. Give us faith for this so that you might be glorified and that we might find our joy in you, that you might build up your church. You encourage us with what you've given to us as these gifts of your grace.